and we might have made it to Switzerland. But had we not, I would have wound up as an eight-year-old bunch of ashes. Does that drive me? Well, to some degree. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy Barcelona, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Andrew Viterbi. He is the co-founder of Qualcomm. Yes, Qualcomm, and the creator of the Viterbi algorithm. His chips are in the phone that you're using today. Yes, and he helped invent 4G, 5G, and whatever G comes later. Now, when he was four years old, he came to the U.S. as a refugee from Italy. And by 10 years old, he already had a passion for math and technology and wanted to study at MIT. Turns out he did. Now Andrew's in his 80s, and his company, Qualcomm, is worth over $120 billion at the time of this episode. If you ever want to learn about how to invent an algorithm and make your own luck, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, how money changed Andrew's life coming from nothing to being a billionaire. Two, if Andrew regrets working as hard as he did to get his success. And three, the number one thing he thinks startups need to be successful. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch of weird ear nuggets along the way. If you're looking to scheduling and use a product like TidyCal and you pay money, you got to stop that and save that money today. Go check out TidyCal. That's T-I-D-Y, cal.com. It is free. I use it to help scheduling on my podcast. People are using it for coaching, freelancing, to have dates with their wives and husbands. I think so. TidyCal.com. Go check it out. It's free to use or 29 bucks for life. Also, if you want to start your own business and you don't know how, but you want some support, we have opened up our course, Monthly 1K, for 10 bucks. Yeah, that's okdork.com slash monthly 1K. It has helped thousands of people start their businesses, and I think it can help you too. Okdork.com slash monthly 1K. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Molly Marie Photo of the USA. She left a saying, one of my favorite podcasts, I met you in 2016 at FinCon, and I've been following your journey ever since. I absolutely love this podcast. Molly, I love you too. Justin Welsh and freaking Ben Queller have been my favorite recent episodes. Really appreciate you finding these amazing guests and bringing us their stories. I love it, and I'll keep doing it forever. And I love every other one of you gorgeous people, just like Molly. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever listening to this podcast. I check every single one of them. What would you say your story is in 30 seconds? Okay, I came to America when I was four years old in 1939 as a refugee with my parents, of course as a Jewish refugee from fascist Italy, which meant that we lost all our civil rights. What did I do with my life? Well, I studied hard. I was attracted to mathematics and technology from a very young age, decided when I was about 10 years old that I wanted to study at MIT, and I did. From there, I came to California to work on the space program at Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was working on, my job was in communicating with rockets and controlling them. Three months after I got to uh, L.A., Pasadena, the Russians were nice enough to launch Sputnik and got us into the space race. I actually wrote some papers that became quite important, got a lot of awards for over the years. But more important than that, it became one of the technologies that enabled both satellite communications and later cellular, regular smartphones to communicate more efficiently. We founded two companies together with Erwin Jacobs, who was a professor at UCSD while I was a professor at UCLA. We started the business, in, the first business in 1969, and eventually we sold it to a small conglomerate, which proceeded to ruin it. And so we left and started Qualcomm. 
And I think the Qualcomm story is pretty well known. It grew by leaps and bounds. Initially, by doing uh, communications, we put satellite terminals on trucks and uh, very small antennas, and it was a pioneering system. The same technology we then applied to smartphones, and that really took off. A few things there. One, Qualcomm today, how many people work at Qualcomm? Probably in the tens of thousands, probably 30 or 40,000. I don't know where it is now, but it seems to be thriving. And then the valuation I just looked up is almost $120 billion company. $120 billion. Okay, but it's not a trillion yet. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'm curious is, it seems like everything you did, you were successful. What is it about you that helped you be so successful in everything you were doing? Well, I was in the right place at the right time. The industry, the technology that has gone into telecommunications driven initially by the space program, satellites in general, all the things that satellites can do for you, both in business and all sorts of consumer areas and uh, even in entertainment, in transportation. We migrated to cellular phones, which are the fastest growing industry in history. A lot of that was luck, but you have to seize your luck. And we had engineers who said, well, what we're doing, which is called spread spectrum for uh, satellites, we can do that for terrestrial. And there's certain things that are similar. Why don't we try that? And at first I told them they were crazy, but they proved otherwise. And uh, the company really took off. How did you make most of your fortune? On Qualcomm. The first company, Linkabit, we sold the whole company for $25 million that I uh, actually returned to the university briefly on a very part-time basis because I like teaching and I like the research that goes with it. But eventually, uh, Qualcomm activities simply uh, grabbed me after a couple of years of self-imposed very low salaries. We then took advantage of the uh, success. And uh, by the time I retired, there was a nice, a big nest egg. I did ask you this earlier, but I'm curious, what was it like to become a billionaire? Well, it didn't change my lifestyle. <laughs> and in some things, I still think the way I used to when I was an assistant professor. Not a starving one. Yeah. We came as refugees. My father was a physician. He had to pass all his ex medical exams over again in order to get a, a license to practice. And lucky for me, he did it in Boston rather than New York. And thereby, I got the best possible education. I liked what I was doing. I liked to study, and I liked even more to teach. And teaching and research go together in a very elegant way. A lot of our early funding was governmental. We started with satellite communications and other kinds, uh, mostly for the military. How did money change your life? How did money change my life? Not all that much. I built a ranch up in Rancho Santa Fe, and uh, this place is not cheap either. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I don't think I splurged. I had a Ferrari for a while because my kids talked me into it. When I retired, when I was 65, they uh, wanted to buy it for me and made a, a down payment. I said, no, no, I'll pay for it. But uh, I didn't like it. Best car I've driven is the Tesla. And not only because it's 
environmentally uh, appropriate, but because it's funded right. It sounds like you're very practical with your money. Well, I do notice inflation. I feel guilty about it, to tell you the truth, because people are hurting. And I'm not splurging, but I'm not hurt by it. Partly because of that, I put a lot of money into philanthropy. I have uh, named a school of engineering at USC, which is the one that gave me the, the PhD that allowed me to play in academia. I uh, also named a uh, department of the top technical university in Israel, the Technion, Israel Institute of Technology in Haifa. Done a fair amount for MIT, half a dozen endowed chairs, as well as a lot of scholarships and fellowships. And similarly at USC, and, uh, and I'm kind of a sucker for supporting academia, especially supporting students in need, because I was one as a freshman at MIT. Do you have regrets of like that you work too much? You know, the French expression is a song, Je ne regrette rien. I don't regret anything. It sounds like Frank Sinatra is, I did it my way, and I have no regrets. Yeah. But I really don't have that kind of ego. But as I said, I was in the right place at the right time, had the right skills, had the right drive, because I liked what I was doing. And I often tell young people, if you find a job which you enjoy, you're not working. You're having a great time. And sure, we had our ups and downs of the company. <laughs> Lost contracts. We, uh, we had a fire once. But, uh, and those are the downsides. But we had a lot of upsides. And probably best of all, it's all the, uh, the very smart young guys and gals who, uh, joined us early on. It was, I spent a lot of time recruiting in our first company, and it was a tough job. You know, who's going to join five academics? But by the time we started Qualcomm, our reputation, scientific reputation, we had already been established, but now our reputation for successful companies was a little better, and we, we got a lot of very good people from MIT, from lots of California universities, and UCSD, and San Diego State. I think there's a conception, and I'm curious your answer, to be very rich, you have to neglect your family. You feel like you got to spend as much time with your family as you wanted. I had a very good family life, and it was all due, mostly due to my wife, who passed away six, seven years ago. But we have great kids. We had a tragedy when son passed away relatively young. But I have two still alive and doing well. And I have five grandchildren, and they are the sunlight in my life. We had three weddings this summer, two granddaughters and one grandson. For someone starting in their career, for your grandchildren or their kids, what would you recommend for them in their careers? Exactly what I said. If you find something that interests you and it really excites you, and you'll enjoy it throughout your career. What was your first job? I was a soda jerk in a uh, drugstore in the heart of Boston downtown. <laughs> Do you remember how much you made? 65 cents an hour. Of course I'll remember. <laughs> then I was a co-op student at MIT. I got paid a little bit better. I don't remember exactly what. I think it was $80 a week, and which seemed like a lot of money to me then, and it was. 
And uh, then my first job at JPL was $700 a month. And I had three offers. The other two were from, uh, they were all government contractors, but they were for profit. Hughes Aircraft Company and uh, TRW. And uh, the uh, JPL one was, I sensed that it had more technology, more science, and more potential. And boy, was I right. But pure luck. My father had been so unlucky that at the top of his peak of his career, where he was head of uh, the ophthalmology department of a large public hospital, he got fired because he was a Jew. That was 1938. Although there were, relative to other parts of Europe, Italy didn't have a lot of Jews, only about 40,000. But, you know, when your career is just cut out, that you're very unlucky. So I figured my luck was divine retribution for my father's bad luck. How was your work-life balance? Well, I never let it get to the point where I couldn't come home. Well, I did a lot of traveling in the 90s. It had gotten to be a more than a full-time job. But I always managed to, uh, you know, by the time I got into my 50s, by Kids were already in college and growing up beyond needing attention. And my wife would travel with me quite a bit. Life was good, even during the, that period. I never hesitated to pick up the phone no matter what I was doing. And I'm proud of that. You helped invent the cell phone. Like the technology that you helped create is enabling you to have them. Well, look, yes, I was one of 10,000 creators. Not all of the same level, but one of the very successful entrepreneurs, Paul Buran, who had a company up in the Bay Area, used to say a major development or a major discovery requires construction of a large brick wall. And all of the participants bring a brick to that wall. And my brick was successful. <laughs> How did you come up with the idea for Qualcomm? Well, Linkabit, our first company, came out of our university research, like so many companies do. And it was financed 90 to 95 percent with government contracts, which were very good at that time. Eventually, it paid off for our government, for our nation, and for humanity, starting with the transistor, the whole solid state development and the whole telecommunication industry. But for us, it was a continuation. We already had done a fair amount of transition to commercial operation when HBO, what became digital satellites. When we started Qualcomm, again, because we had limited capital, we went after government contracts. That kept us going maybe for a year, but very rapidly we moved into a commercial in particular with the uh, communication to the long-distance, long-haul trucking industry. For people that don't know, what exactly did you invent? Well, a whole lot of things. But uh, what I'm known for is the Viterbi algorithm, and that is a method for improving digital communication by, sometimes it's called correcting errors, but it really isn't correcting. It is preventing errors. The way NASA describes it, is we can double our uh, range 
if you would have been able to reach a satellite that's thousand miles up, now you can go two thousand miles. Or, or what was halfway to the moon, you can now get to the moon. That sort of thing. But it also, from a commercial point of view, it began by quadrupling the uh, number of cell phones you could have on a particular spectrum. So it quadrupled the efficiency. And then ultimately doing some other things, we actually pioneered a, at Qualcomm a uh, technology called spread spectrum, which along with what I just described, actually gives you about a, an order of magnitude, a factor of 10 to 20 times the number of users you can have. And Spectrum was very expensive. Since then, Qualcomm's done a lot of things. But I don't take any credit. I take partial credit for some of it towards the beginning. How did you come up with the algorithm? How did you figure that out? Oh, I was teaching a course at uh, UCLA. And the course involved some very recent research that had come out of MIT. And it was very hard to teach it because it was very complicated. And I found a simpler way to describe it. And I wasn't so sure that it would be commercially useful. And from that, we actually did a lot of applications of that idea, originally in naval communications, and then in uh, Air Force. And then the Army came along and simultaneously NASA. So uh, it really took off. And that's what made our first company profitable and, and worthy of being bought. And then we started Qualcomm, and, and that we went after bigger fish. Is this the technology that's in 5G? Is this the basis for 5G technology for cell phones? No, it was the basis for 2G and 3G. 4G, it also had some impact on 4G. In fact, after I had retired, I joined the board of a startup that had come out of Bell Labs, the AT&T's research arm. And uh, they are the ones who pioneered 5G. They wanted to stay on their own and do an IPO and all. And they had a uh, customer. The trouble was the customer got bought out by a larger uh, telecom provider and uh, was, wasn't interested in the technology. So Qualcomm bought them. And uh, probably 4G was the most profitable with a major step up for Qualcomm and for the industry. And 5G is an evolution on that. Technology keeps moving up, and there will be 6G. Eventually, I think we will saturate. There are certain areas of technology which have stopped growing, but I would say telecommunications and what it does, being so successful, will probably have 10 generations worth of Every decade, if you go back, cellular communication started in the 80s in analog form. That was 1G. 2G started in the 90s, from the beginning of the 90s, and it didn't reach maturity until 95 or so, which was the same date that the Internet opened up. And the combination of cell phones and the Internet has just changed the world. Not all for the better. But on the whole, it certainly enabled humanity. I used to think it was all for the better. You know, you give everybody a voice in perfect democracy. Well, perfect democracy. <laughs> you may not want all that. 
got distorted badly, but let's not go yeah. into that. What percent of Qualcomm did you own as one of the founders? Well, at the very beginning, a bigger amount. By the time we uh, went public, a lot less. That was never my concern. What was your concern? I had a good time. I got a very big kick out of all the technological successes and then finally the, the commercial successes. How did you enjoy your money? I put a lot of money into philanthropy, significant percentage of my wealth. I made sure all my uh, descendants would have good educations, and they've all gone through college, pretty good colleges, even Yale, which I never <laughs> thought much of. <laughs> but I, I didn't want them to go to Harvard because MIT had a very low opinion of Harvard students. Yeah, We worked hard for our education by working, I mean, for learning. And I can still remember being on a subway on the way to MIT, and there was a Harvard classmate from high school classmate. And he says, oh, you go to the trade school. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about things you, that were good things you spent money on, but you mentioned you invested in some things that didn't work out. Or you had a venture fund. I'm curious, what are some of the sillier or worst things you spent money on? Well, the worst was when I had invested, it happened more than once, I invested in, in people, in people that I, particularly engineers who had started companies, engineers who had worked for me at Qualcomm or that I've been involved with over the years. And I believe that the success of a startup depends, if not exclusively, primarily on the people they have. And not only technology, also the business side. But here was a company that I thought had potential. In fact, IBM was an early support, an early customer. They screwed up. And that was a big disappointment. And I lost a couple of million. But uh, on the other hand, I've had some that I was just lucky on. And I had a 10x return or higher. You say luck a lot. You were lucky. How do you think people can increase their luck? Is it work hard, harder, study more? Well, the, the old adage is you make your own luck. You got to participate or the luck may be there, but you won't get it. You have to really work at it. That's life. Yeah. I'm curious how your life would have turned out if your father and, and your family stayed in Italy. Oh, I would have wound up in the ashes. Italy entered the war in 1940 as an ally to Nazi Germany. It was independent until 43. Independent meaning that Jews in particular were prevented from working. The kids couldn't go to school. Teachers from kindergarten to graduate school were kicked out. All of those things, but nobody was killed. Okay, 1943, we landed in Sicily and then moved up the boot to Naples, almost Rome. And at that point, Mussolini was rejected by his followers and imprisoned, and Hitler sent a uh, parachute brigade down to rescue him, took him up to northern Italy, and created the captive northern Italian state. After which, that was just a puppet republic, and the Germans came down and took the whole, everything that the Allies hadn't already liberated allies being American and British troops. 
And at that point, they started rounding up the Jews. And uh, 20%, which is a low percentage, 20% were sent to the concentration camps. 99% of them perished. A number of my relatives made it. 80% were rescued. And that's because they lived in northern Italy and they could go over the border with a lot of difficulty to Switzerland. And we might have made it to Switzerland. But had we not, I would have wound up as an eight-year-old bunch of ashes. Does that drive me? Well, to some degree. I mean, after all, my father and mother had the good sense of trying to get an American visa, which was not easy to do. As you can see in that documentary of Ken Burns, he's got a whole hour on on how uh, State Department refused to give visas to Jews. But my father found the way, and uh, we made it here. He had some luck. That was the first luck, and the second luck was that he started his practice, which was not terribly successful, but enough that we could not starve, in Boston, as opposed to New York. He would have done better in New York, but I was in a much better position in education in Boston, I think. How do you think being Jewish impacted your career and your success? Well, the drive was there. My father's education, he was what they used to call a Renaissance man. He he was a medical doctor, but he also had interests throughout science and in literature and culture of various kinds. So I was encouraged, I might say brainwashed, but in a very positive way towards education and towards knowledge. So that might call luck that a ghetto kid doesn't have and doesn't have a father figure. He was my role model. Throughout my education and my career, I don't think I was ever disadvantaged by anti-Semitism. By the way, when we arrived in the United States, go back to Ken Burns, he does a great job of describing my life as far as anti-Semitism. America was a very anti-Semitic country. Not totally, but enough. We're getting back to that now. But that's a different story. But throughout my life, I've been blessed. For Qualcomm, what are maybe some of the highlights or things you're proud of and maybe some of the low moments from your Qualcomm experience? The highlights is when uh, the rest of the telecommunication industry, meaning the manufacturers, companies like Motorola and AT&T, as well as the uh, carriers, Verizon, uh, picked our standard. They had to vote on a standard. There was one competitive, which was the one that was being used in Europe. And the Europeans were very aggressive. They thought they had reinvented communications and they had left the Americans behind. The Japanese were much more circumspect. They copied the American system, but they renamed it. <laughs> and the Chinese in those days were not a major player. And when we won the, the competition for our standard being picked, it didn't happen all at once, but gradually it really spelled the success of Qualcomm. Uh, what was a, well, we lost some military jobs early on. We screwed up on, uh, video cipher. Not video, video cipher was a, a way of protecting HBO's signal so you couldn't pirate it. It was a cryptographic system. That worked fine, but we were trying to do video cinema, namely, and I think it's been done uh, since that transmit 
off of a satellite cinema quality material, and you protect that again because you don't want the pirates to grab it and show it in China even before it's released. And、uh, we lost that one, but by that time we were in pretty good shape, so it was not a major disaster. How would you like to be remembered as? Oh, well, I wrote a memoir. I had an interesting life, and I want to be remembered for being、uh, the head of my family and having、uh, both successful grandchildren and children, and also a warm family. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Thank you, Andrew Viterbi, and the algorithm and all that you've invented on this worth, and plus sharing all your knowledge with everyone out there. Few things that you guys might want to check out: the course again, monthly one k. If you want to start your own business, that's okdork.com/slash/monthly1k.、Okay, and check out tidycal again, tidycal.com. Also, if you want to check out more fun content to inspire you in your business journey, check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com/slash/okdork.、Okay, There's a lot of checking today. Someone send me a check, or I'll send you a check. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's have a barbecue together. Original yo, dog. And before you go, tweet at me, TikTok, 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 at Noah Kagan. I do like hearing from you, and I respond to most people, except when they're like, "Yo, I got this new thing to do, create content for you." I'm like, "Dude, ugh." Also, we have a newsletter, OKDork.com.、Okay、we have exclusive content for subscribers. Go check it out, OKDork.com.、Okay、Finally, a couple shoutouts to the amazing team that helps make this happen. Thank you to Jason for helping make these episodes sound so much better than the original versions. He does all the editing. Thank you to Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And shout out to the email and brand team at AppSumo Max, Jessica and Camille. We did NapSumo for April Fool's Day. Pretty cool. Pretty pretty cool. Appreciate you working hard to bring something fun to the Sumolings at AppSumo.com. Have a fruitful day. What's your favorite soda? I'll tell you. Real talk. Mine's Coke Zero. I've been drinking that shit like crazy out here in Barcelona.